Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, July 22nd is brought to you by the Chicago Teachers Union, the Chicago Federation of Labor, SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, and of course, the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Go check it out, Chicago Reader. And if you want to help out this program, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y, and you can become a binhead. Thursday. Well, it is Thursday, July 22nd, and live from my apartment in his attic, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, hopefully, because Google Meet yesterday, we welcome Marissa Novera, and it's the return of 35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Love and Mega Thursday, and here's why. Do you just want to tell you before I do this launch, I got a text from our guest, Marisa, and she says she's waiting to be get, get in. <laughs> One more appeal to Google Meet. Let her in, Google Meet. Let her in. Sorry, folks. Get distracted here. <laughs> we, may, we may have to go to a different uh, platform. Anyway, focus, Ben, focus. Please. I was going to talk about Coach Monty Williams, what a class act he is, Coach the Phoenix Suns. But then I got distracted by a column by a writer named Gary Abernathy. It's in the Washington Post. Gary Abernathy is a Trump voter from southwestern Ohio, and he says he's sick and tired of Democrats making fun of Trump voters and calling them liars and calling them dumb and calling them dupes. Just because, he argues, you have fallen hook, line, and sinker for the idiocy of a huckster who behind the scenes makes fun of you for falling hook, line, and sinker for his idiocy does not mean you're dumb, a liar, or dupey. Is there a word dupey? I do not know. I like I it. I'm just, I'm just, you like it? Okay, well, I'm going to keep using it. By the way, this is not an infrequent refrain to appear by some columnist for the Washington Post or the New York Times. Those are two liberal newspapers that get bashed regularly by the right. Okay, these are basically centrist newspapers, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to find a lot of people in the Washington Post or the New York Times with views like mine, for instance. Okay, they're basically right down the middle of the road centrist, but the right uses them like a punching bag. That's the sound of a punching bag, D. By the way, it's not a good sign that our next guest still has not been in the room. Uh, Google Meet, please. Come on, Google Meet. 
I'm only going to say good things about you if you let our next guest in. Punching bag. <laughs> anyway, so even though, okay, you know, even though the right pounds the Washington Post and the New York Times, they will ter- occasionally turn over a column. They do this all the time in the New York Times to some columnist who's mad at the left. Someone castigating liberals or lefties or progressives or whatever the hell they're called these days for being stuck up and arrogant and elitist or just kind of mean in regards to Trump voters. By the way, you will never see the same thing in reverse. That is, you won't see a Trumpster calling on other Trumpsters to be nice to lefties or liberals or progressives or whatever the hell they call us these days. Quite the opposite. Every day brings more bile in my email from MAGA regarding folks of the center-left persuasion. We're radical thugs. We're dupes of China. We're controlled by Marxists. We're like, this is really weird, mean, evil, racist, because we criticize black MAGAites. We want to put blacks on a plantation. And then they say, we want to cancel culture and stifle thought and turn America into some kind of gulag controlled by China. I get two to three of those kinds of emails an hour. And not once do I ever see a MAGA saying, you know, guys, you should lower the volume. You know, guys, liberals are people, too. You know, guys, we shouldn't reduce them to social stereotypes that are easier to beat up or take their arguments and turn them to straw man arguments, which are easy to bat down since they were made up to begin with. Oh, no. Being MAGA means never, ever having to say you're sorry all the time while crying that they're picking on you. Not going to hear the counter argument. I can see it bubbling up already from the people of the MAGA persuasion. But then those emails, they're being sent by professional politicians looking to raise money for their MAGA causes. They aren't rank and file MAGA people. Oh, like rank and file MAGA people are any better. Obviously, obviously, the uh, Greg, the Gary Abernathy's of the world have never met someone like my former brother-in-law. My former brother-in-law, through marriage, so he's no longer my brother-in-law since the marriage broke up, was MAGA long before it existed. He was a red, meat-eating, Rush, Limbaugh-loving, right-wing Republican hates liberals going back to the 80s. We'd be sitting at the table, and I was under, by the way, good news, my next guest has joined us. Google Meet, you've worked. I'm interrupting this flow of brilliance to say how happy I am, Google Meet. Thank you, Google Meet. I know bow down to you. Oh, Google Mead. <laughs> Sorry, that was a distraction. I didn't mean to go there, Marisa. All right, Eddie, where was I? Oh, my ex-brother-in-law. He was MAGA long before it existed. He was loving Rush Limbaugh, hating on liberals going back to the 80s. We'd be sitting at the dining room table in the 80s and the 90s, and I was under strict orders not to talk politics because it's a delicate topic, and you don't want to upset the dinner table. But that didn't stop him. He'd be out brand talking about oh, whatever kind of nonsense he heard that day on the Rush Limbaugh show about feminazis. He never once thought about hurting our feelings. 
Never once thought that maybe containing his most radical right-wing thoughts might bring peace to the dinner table. No. As he saw it, this was America. He had the liberty to say what he wanted when he wanted. Damn it, if you don't like it. Tough luck. You're a snowflake. No, I guess I'm supposed to say, oh, brother-in-law, I really think you have some really great thoughts. And I'm going to think about those great thoughts, especially the part where you liken women to Nazis. By the way, in his essay, Gregory Anthony, uh, Abernathy says 40 percent of the election thinks for excuse me, 40 percent of the population thinks the election was stolen. And that's just the way it is. So get over it, liberals. Listen, I've been on the losing end of presidential elections that hurt for a long, long time. I'm older. I'm an old guy. I was the losing end of an election in 1972. My next guest, she can't believe it. that's blowing her mind. She's like 1972. That was like 20 years before I was born. I was on a losing election in 1972, 1980, 1984, 1984, 19, I'm not bragging. I'm just stating fact. 1988, 2000, 2004, 2016. Never once did I call for a change in federal election law to correct a fraud that never existed in the first place. I don't know, MAGA. You might want to do a little introspection before you cry about mean liberals. And that brings me back to Coach Monty Williams, the super classy coach of the Phoenix Suns. They lost the NBA Finals the other day to the Bucks, four games to two. Great series, heartbreaking loss for Phoenix Suns fans. I'm not one of them, but I know that hurt. It must have hurt the players. It must have hurt the coach. And yet after that final game where he lost, Coach Williams went into the victorious Milwaukee Bucks locker room and congratulated them. He told them that they were true champions and that playing them made his team a better team and made him a better coach. That is total class, Coach Monty Williams. God bless you, sir. Now let's contrast that to Donald Trump. He got his butt whooped in 2020. I know that hurt his ego, but not once did he concede he lost. Not once did he congratulate the winner. Not once did he offer to help in any way with the transition. Not once has he offered to use his influence to get people to put aside their differences and do something in the common good. Like, I don't know, getting a shot against COVID. And yet MAGA's whining because someone calls them dupes. Show some class, MAGA. Stop whining and be like Coach Monty Williams. We got a great show today, everybody. I'm looking at our next guest, Marisa Navarra, Commissioner of Housing uh, uh, for the city of Chicago. Uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Alderman of the 35th Ward, will be joining us when Carlos is here. We'll be talking about police reform and the civilian oversight measure that passed the city council yesterday. That's pretty amazing. Uh, but with Commissioner Navarro, we're going to be discussing affordable housing, uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart and one I've been waiting to talk about for a long time. So welcome to the show, Commissioner. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. It is great to be here. And it's great that Google Meet. One more time, I want to thank Google Meet for allowing this to happen. Our show, I don't know. The poor poor uh, Marisa was stuck in Google Meet hell for like five minutes. I know what it's like. You see that little circle going around and around and around. But in, just waiting. You know. Just waiting. All right. Uh, so there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. 
Uh, number one, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, welcome to the show. It's your, your first time guest. We usually give some kind of gifts to first time guests, but uh, I can't think of one to give you right now. So I'll just say thank you. Um, so the story that caught my eye was one that I was in Block Club about a uh, proposal uh, for um, affordable housing on the northwest side of Chicago uh, in, the, I believe it's the 45th Ward. Uh, and I, oh my goodness, uh, Marisa, this is, I think it was 5150 Northwest Highway, if my uh, memory is correct. That's right. uh, John Arena uh, was the alderman of the 45th Ward at the time, a little to left of center, maybe center left, if you will. Uh, and he had the political courage. I'm going to give a shout out to John Arena. He had the political courage to champion uh, this proposal. And did he get reamed? He got reamed on social media. And I know this is before you were a commissioner, so, uh, but, but you were following things. Uh, he got reamed on social media. He got reamed in person. He got reamed. Everybody was like, you would think it was some kind of communist takeover on a 45th Ward. That, and they were going to destroy life as we know it uh, with this project. And here we are all those years later, and he was voted out of office in part because of this. Uh, and, well, I'll let you tell the rest of the story, but it was, it was really remarkable. There's a waiting list of people trying to get into this building, affordable housing, and many of them live in the area. And lo and behold, it turns out there is a need for affordable housing in the 45th Ward on the northwest side of the city of Chicago. Could it be that John Arena was right? Take it away, Commissioner. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, as, as you say, I think these numbers show us, don't let anybody tell you that there's not a need for affordable housing on the northwest side. We are at uh, the, the development, which I'll tell you a little bit more about, is 75 units, and they haven't even uh, begun lease up yet, and they're at 700 people on the waiting list. So, um, so just to back up a moment, uh, on this development, because yes, it was before my time in this position. Uh, and the developer here is a nonprofit affordable housing developer, full circle. They were looking at, at um, opportunities on the Northwest side, knowing it was a place that was lacking affordable and accessible housing. And I think that's something important to consider um, in particular because of their mission. Just um, about 10% of the housing stock on, in the, on the Northwest side has been built after the Americans with Disabilities Act. So for people who need accessibility features, this is not a place that's easy to find accessibility and affordability. So um, as you said, then Alderman Arena was supportive of this. They found a location right by the blue line, which you know the city has a thing called a transit-oriented development ordinance. It says we value development near transit, especially dense development near transit, because that's an important way for people to get to work and, and so on. And originally the proposal was a hundred units of affordable housing. And as you say, residents pushed back hard. Um, and in the beginning, we saw things like uh, signs that said no Cabrini and Jefferson Park or um Cabrini started out as veterans housing too, um, because the the pledge from the developer was that this would be uh, focused on um, that there would be a preference for I should say rather for veterans and um, and people who needed accessibility. Um, and so yeah, there was a great deal of pushback. It also on the positive side created a group uh, that spurred a group. 
to create itself called Neighbors for Affordable Housing uh, as people looked around and said, actually, um, this does, these views don't represent me and there's other people like me. Let's come together and make sure our voices are heard too. And eventually um, the developer reduced the size to 75 units, which is what they have now. Uh, it's, been, it's been funded, it's been under construction since about the time um, I came into this role. And, um, and what I've learned from the developers, they've got about 150 veterans and people with disabilities self-identified on the waiting list. And more than 400 of the 700 folks on the waiting list are current Northwest Side residents. And I think that's a really important thing to point out. When we look across the city, um, we have people that are paying more than they can afford rent in all 50 wards and all 77 community areas, right? And many of them are right in this area um, where there was tremendous pushback on this kind of housing. So as the commissioner now, as opposed to a person on the outside, uh, how do you deal with the knee-jerk reaction that has uh, afflicted Chicago for as long as I can remember. And this goes, I mean, you wrote an essay about this uh, a couple of years ago, but it goes back even before the, the start of where you cited in the essay. We were talking about the 1950s and Elizabeth Wood uh, trying to bring uh, scatter site, uh, low rise housing throughout the city of Chicago and the reaction, the strong reaction that greeted those proposals, which led Mayor Richard J. Daley, Daddy Daley, uh, to build the high-rise projects uh, of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, containing essentially containing black people uh, in these high-rise projects to avoid any kind of integration. So how do you, Marisa, deal with this just age-long uh, kickback, this, this resistance that seems to pop up uh, whenever there's a proposal, or often, not whenever, but when... Often there's a proposal for low-income low income housing uh, in uh, mostly white areas. It, well, you're right, Ben, that it goes back. Uh, I would trace it back to 1916, to the start of the Great Migration, when their Chicago first experienced in numbers of um, Black residents from the South. And there was first a push to say, uh, these folks must be contained on the near South side. And so when I think about it today, your question is one that... Um, you know, is is incredibly relevant today. I, I we have such PS, PTSD in this city about subsidized housing. When you think about the racism that fueled three miles of public housing along State Street, this is what you were referring to, right? That was a containment strategy to keep as many black people as possible on one side of the highway, away from majority white neighborhoods, away from majority white schools. So when you fast forward to today, I, my most charitable read of what's going on is that we don't have the imagination to see how affordable housing could be done well. So you will see people saying things and have said this to me. Didn't we learn anything from Cabrini Green? And, you know, the answer to that is, yeah, we sure did. That's why this development is 75 units. It's not 3,600, which is what Cabrini Green was. And these are... Um, complete false equivalencies, but for many people, I say affordable housing and you think State Street Corridor. Um, and we lack the imagination to what a well-designed, well-maintained mixed-income community can be, and that, in fact, it is a benefit and an amenity to a community. And I'll tell you the point when that became crystallized for me, and 
Um, it began pre-commissioner role just as a resident. I live in Little Italy, um, right around the corner from the former Abla Homes. And there was a proposed redevelopment there to create a library on the first floor and, and um, public and affordable, mostly, units above. And there was a great deal of pushback, just like um, you experience in many parts of the city. Um, and when we did the grand opening of the library and the units and so on, at that point, I had become commissioner. And one of the people who had been an opponent to it came up to me at the grand opening. Beautiful library, beautiful setting, just an amazing end result. Um, and he said to me something really just incredible. He said, I just want to say that I could not picture what this would be like. And now I see it and I can feel it and I can touch it. And I can see that I was worked up over nothing. And it, I have carried that with me because sometimes what, you know, an answer to your question, what do you do um, about this pushback is that sometimes, I mean, it's important that we share data. We've got to dispel myths that affordable housing will tank property values things like that. But I also know that for many people, it is not until you see it and touch it and feel it uh, for you to personally be able to accept that this is actually an amenity in your community. And the other piece I'll say to answer your question, um, I think there's a fundamental shift that we need. Um, and this is true across the country, but it's certainly true in, in Chicago, um, that if we're going to talk about uh, being a profoundly racially and economically segregated city and we're going to acknowledge that that has negatives, uh, then we have to be able to acknowledge that we need an equitable distribution of affordable housing. And if we're going to say that that's a reasonable goal, that every community should contribute to our affordable housing needs, then our local conversations about affordable housing needs to be about how we do affordable housing, not if. The if does not get taken down to a local referendum, right? And I think about, um, I a quote in that piece, I saying by Senator Cory Booker, he said, we should not be putting civil rights issues to a popular vote to be subject to the sentiments and passions of the day. I think we absolutely should have local conversations about how this should look and how it should interact with the community and what amenities might people want to see. But it's not an if conversation, because if we leave that uh, to a hyper local decision, that's exact hundred years of doing that is exactly how we got today. Well, uh, you mentioned a hyper local uh, decision. I just chatted that down. Oh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa has joined us. My next guest. I love when guests show up early and Google Meet is working well, uh, Marisa. I tried right. to show up early. Come on. Yeah, no, you did a good job. It's not your fault. It's Google Meet. Let's just blame Google Meet, okay? I've been blaming them for like the last week right. uh, for everything. Uh, so, all right. You say hyperlocal, and this is going to get uh, fun to have uh, Carlos listening to this part of the conversation, because I read that essay uh, that you wrote. I can't remember where you published it, but I, you sent it to me, and I dutifully read it. It was a homework assignment that you gave me, and I followed it. Uh, I was in Planning Council at the time. Okay. Um, say that again. I got blurted out a little bit. You were what? Did you say? Planning Council was where oh. I wrote it. All right. So one of the issues you raised uh, in that essay is that there's a, a problem in Chicago caused by automatic prerogative. And this is uh, and you cited my dear friend uh, Maya Dukmasova's article that ran in the reader on this very topic about a different a different how <laughs> now it's confusing all our listeners, a different housing uh, 
a proposal, a low income ho- or excuse me, affordable housing proposal on the northwest side. This one at out by O'Hare on uh, Higgins Road that was blocked by uh, Alderman Napolitano. Uh, and uh, the conclusion is, is that it's aldermanic prerogative uh, that is blocking many attempts uh, to uh, build affordable housing in Chicago. I, I take exception to that, and I'll tell you why, and then I'll get your love to hear your response. Uh, I believe that automated prerogatives is largely a myth that's exaggerated, uh, and that the mayor, uh, by and large, holds most of the power in the city of Chicago. And if the mayor uh, wants Alderman uh, Napolitano to throw a hissy fit and block a project on Higgins Road out by O'Hare, then the mayor, at that time, a gentleman named Rahm Emanuel, will look the other way and pretend he doesn't see it. Uh, and uh, I can think of instances where the mayor has made proposals that local aldermen were against and the mayor forced it through the city council. The most obvious one, this may have been before you or Carlos were following things, but uh, goes back to about 15 years ago when they were trying to put the Children's Museum uh, in Grant Park and the local alderman and uh, Brendan Riley was vehemently against it. And Mayor Daly shoved it down his throat anyway. So. Uh, your response to all that, do you think uh, I'm being too nice to Alderman when I say Alderman and prerogative is not uh, the boogeyman that many people say it is? Uh, I think that I think that uh, we all have a role to play. What I have come to see really clearly is that if residents didn't put the political pressure on their elected officials to maintain our segregated reality, we would see a lot less of this happen. So I also, you know, what I want to point to here is that in the many meetings that I've had um, and that I've been part of as a resident, um, as, you know, in my former roles or in the role that I'm in today, um, what I often hear are residents saying, um, I am opposed to this, not for because I am racist and I am opposed to this project because I truly have concerns that it's too dense or there's not enough parking or it will overcrowd schools. And I want to be really clear in saying that, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what's in anybody's heart, but my own. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever, uh, you know, speak on, on their intent. And I would also say that intent is largely irrelevant in these kinds of cases, right? Racist intent is not required to have racist outcomes. So if I'm a resident in an area with very little affordable housing and I step up to the mic in a community meeting and say, I don't want this development here because it might make it harder for me to park down the street from, or I might have to park further down the street from my house. Regardless of the intention of of my urging for it to be blocked, I have to grapple with the fact that my actions are contributing to the continued segregation and subjugation of people of color. And they're contributing to the political pressure of my elected official to maintain it and to say no so that he him he or her will be reelected the next time around. Right. And I think that that is that kind of reflection on the part of people who look like you and me, right? To say, I wish that people who look like you and me, Ben, would spend a lot less time professing the innocence of our intentions and a lot more time grappling with the outcomes of our actions. All right. I agree with everything you just said. There's not really directly answering the question about automated prerogative, uh, but I agree with what uh, what you just said, that we should be honest about our intentions. Not that anybody will. 
Uh, I can't imagine anybody stepping to the microphone and saying, I really don't want black people in my neighborhood. That's why I'm against this. But your point's no, well but, taken. But that's not exactly what I'm saying. I am, I am saying that even if you truly have a fear of tall buildings or even if you truly are concerned about the lack of parking or traffic or any of the reasons we hear it, that doesn't matter because the bottom line is the actions that you're taking still mean if, 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 you know, if you and 20 of your friends all say that, and now the elected officials saying, man, I guess I've got to say no to this development. And now we lose one more opportunity to create more mixed income communities. It doesn't matter what your intent was. That's my argument. All right. Very good. Uh, so let's move forward and try to get some positives out of what's going, what's happening at 5150 Northwest Highway. Again, it's not the only reason that John Arena was not reelected. I just want to make that clear. There were other issues uh, in that ward, but it was a fight that did not help him to put it mildly. So what do you think like is a general message in the aftermath of that election where he lost. And now you see, like you said, this very successful project coming to fruition with a a list of people who want to get in from the neighborhood. Clearly there's a need for affordable housing in the area, people vets in the area, disabled people in the area who need this housing. So what would you say the message going forward should be that uh, other aldermen might want to hear that may make them a little more accommodating to some uh, similar proposals for their work? Sure. I, you know, I think one of the biggest things is that um, I'm, I'm very aware of the difference between being an elected official and an appointed official. And um, I am happy to play the role that I was uh, appointed to play, which is to say, hey, we have a citywide vision uh, that we need affordable housing everywhere. And that if, if someone needs a subsidy to live affordably, I want them to have as many choices as to where they can live as someone who does not need a subsidy. I'm happy to come to the community meeting and wear that jacket and say, and what that means is that, um, you know, we have a strong interest in seeing this development succeed here. Um, And that's a role that I can and should be playing. And I do want to say, you know, I think that when it comes to affordable housing for far too long, our fears have dictated our decisions. And that comes back to, you know, whatever the path of least resistance was, that was our, the, you know, the so-called policy. Um, And what I've been fortunate to have under this administration is the space to actually ask the question, not what's the easiest, but not what's going to ruffle the least feathers, but instead, what if our goal actually was an equitable distribution of affordable housing across all 50 wards? What would we be doing differently? So if I have the space to ask that question, then I've got to be able to help elected officials across the city have that conversation in their communities. Uh, that's my job. You know, they, I shouldn't be asking them to do that on their own. Do you see any other examples throughout the city that you'd like to highlight right now uh, that are similar to the one on the northwest side where affordable housing in areas where it has been uh, resisted uh, in the past to give you some hope uh, that we may break down these walls of segregation? Well, um, I'll tell you that um, the alderman who is waiting in the wings um, here, you know, had had quite an, a, an interesting process that I was fortunate to be involved in starting back in 2014. Um, well, I was at the Metropolitan Planning Council on um, the kind of opportunity um, I wish we had 100 more of, which is we had a city owned 
um, plot of land right on top of the blue line um, at Logan Square in a gentrifying community. And and we were able to work with the aldermen to create a 100% affordable development right on top of transit. And yes, he had pushback. And um, what I think what was so effective there was that there was such a strong community organizing element um, that of people that for years were organizing uh, to say, we have a powerful voice and a unified voice in saying that this is what we need in this community. And so other folks can express their view, of course, uh, that's their right. Um, but they don't make up the majority of the voices here that um, that want and need to see this happen. Do you think, and by the way, we'll ask Carlos uh, Ramirez Rosa for his uh, thoughts on that. I wasn't going to have that as a topic, but uh, since you put it in mind, when we bring him on, I will. Although Carlos is right there right now, he'd, he he could chime in if he wants uh, uh, after I ask this question. Uh, but do you think there's an instance where the city of Chicago should say that the need for affordable housing is so strong that we should override the local objections of an alderman uh, and, and approve it anyway, because we believe that this one particular proposal, first of all, is safe and well run, and it's not going to uh, play to the worst fears people have of affordable housing, but the need for affordable housing is so compelling. It's like a public need, sort of like the need for a new school or the need to repave our roads. Uh, you know, something like a, appealing to a greater public interest, Marisa. I, I can't recall the city of Chicago ever making that argument. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a greater public good to, become, to come from overriding these local concerns. Uh, do you think we're at that point now in the city of Chicago where we're ready to articulate that greater public good for affordable housing? I think we are articulating that. I mean, this is the, when we passed the affordable requirements ordinance, the arrow earlier this year, uh, for the first time, we set up a, a framework where we mapped what are the parts of the city uh, that have less than 10% affordable rental housing. And you can now put, you could build a, um, a high expensive high rise in West Loop, and you could put some of your required affordable units off site in Jefferson Park or in Beverly, or any of the places across the city where we, where we have a very low amount of affordable housing and where we know people want to live or want to stay where, where they currently are. So that's an example where we are, in fact, mapping this and naming it and saying uh, we want affordable housing everywhere. I think there's some interesting examples. You know, I cited um, uh, a law in California that was passed in 2018 uh, it, it's the cities that have not met their affordable housing targets. Um, they have to more quickly approve developments with affordability, even if there is local opposition to them. And that was a law that the California passed statewide. And that's where um, that language comes from. It says local control must be about how a community meets its community goals, not whether it meets those goals. Um, so I think that's an interesting example. All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Commissioner. We're going to bring Carlos on. Carlos, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. And uh, as long as the commissioner is here, why don't you just uh, give your thoughts on this? Uh, she cited a project in your ward. I remember following it uh, in the newspaper. 
uh, it was a affordable housing co- project. Talk about uh, how that went down in your ward. Well, as you know, the Department of Housing was reconstituted at the beginning of this term. Uh, and so while the city previously had a Department of Housing, Marissa Navarro is the inaugural commissioner of the new iteration of the Department of Housing. And she has done such an amazing, phenomenal job. Uh, I really think that her work now as housing commissioner is an extension of the work that she's been doing as a planner uh, with the MPC and other organizations prior to her time with the city. Um, But what I'll say is that I I agree with uh, Marissa on a lot of what she said to your question about, you know, should the city override a local alderman in order to get affordable housing done? Mm -hmm. uh, I I think Marissa is correct to point to uh, the affordable requirement ordinance. Um, You know, there were a lot of aldermen, uh, mostly white, mostly on the north side. Uh, that were upset that the requirement was going to go up to 20% in some areas of the city. Uh, They don't feel that their community needs uh, 20% affordability. Uh, I think it's important for us to talk about the role that developers play as well. A lot of developers, I've seen this happen in my community, rather than proposing a project that's 10 units or more that would trigger the affordability requirement, they'll propose something that's eight units or nine units. They still need an up zone, but they just really do not want to include those affordable units on site. Uh, There's a lot of education that needs to be done uh, to convince the market uh, that they have a role to play in meeting the affordability that our city and our community so desperately need. But what I'll also say is that, you know, I'm a big believer that we need democracy. And I'm a big believer that we need a citywide participatory planning process where we ask people on the west side and the south side and the northwest side and the north side of Chicago to talk about the type of city that we'd like to see. And I think that if we open up those spaces for democratic conversation and collective decision making, we will see that the people of the city of Chicago will give us a mandate that we build affordability in every single neighborhood. And I think it's through that lens, through that participatory approach, that we can move towards a day in Chicago when the local aldermen on the far northwest side um, or, you know, wherever they may be, cannot say no uh, to affordability in their community because we have democratically, collectively come up with a citywide plan. So that would be my personal preference. I think um, what people want is they want to ensure that they have a voice. They want to ensure that, you know, the development decisions that are happening in their community and in their city are in the best interest of everyone. I don't think it's a simple fix to say, well, we need to give up, we need the aldermen to give up power and we need to centralize everything downtown. You can have people that are racist, that are white supremacists making decisions downtown. And you can have the same exact outcomes that we've seen under our current system of aldermanic prerogative as it relates to zoning and land use decisions in our communities. So um, that's that's pretty much my take is, you know, let's take what we've done successfully in the 35th Ward, uh, which many, including the Shriver uh, Center for Poverty Law, have pointed to as a model. Uh, and let's democratize planning. Um, and if we think that, you know, there are going to be more privileged or more powerful voices that are going to be in those spaces, then we need to find a way to make sure that that's not the case, that we're expanding the number of people that are part of that democratic conversation. Um, and so we've done that in the 35th Ward by doing things like providing child care, providing uh, translation, hiring uh you know, professional translators so that they can really do a good job making sure that everyone is understood and part of the conversation happening in the room. Uh, we've done a really good job of outreach, going door to door, making sure that the people that are really the residents of our community are represented in those spaces where the decisions are being made. 
Uh, Commissioner, before we let you go, get your response uh, to what the alderman's suggestion, uh, and then we'll move on to our co- uh, our topic that Carlos is waiting to talk about, uh, the oversight, police, civilian oversight uh, rule, uh, bill that passed yesterday. So your thoughts on his overall comments about the need to uh, project a call for affordable housing citywide to override, in some instances, local opposition. Go ahead. Oh, I think that's I, I think that's very much the message uh, that I'm conveying. When we when we have left this as very um, balkanized, you know, small scale decisions that are about one particular corner and just the people who live on the block around that corner, I think we very much lose the bigger picture of what we need as a city and what it would take to become a more racially equitable city. And the only way to do that is to zoom out and say, where do we need, it's not equal, right? It's equitable. Some places have, we have have a far South community area that has more than 80% restricted affordable housing. And we have parts on the Northwest side that are less than 2%. This is, it's so, when we say, you know, that we we need an equitable distribution, it doesn't mean that every ward or every community needs the same amount of affordable housing. We're starting from entirely different places. We have different zoning and different housing stock. It's not going to be the same numbers, but we do need every community to contribute. Uh, fair enough. All right, we're going to uh, let you go, Commissioner, but I will say this. I want some of you folks on the Northwest side who are crying about John Arena's proposal and railing and ranting. Come on, be fair. Just send him a little telegram or some telegrams, an email, anything. Come on, admit you were wrong in that one. Admit you were wrong in that one. So much, oh my goodness, chest pounding and crying and wailing and hair pulling. And they said all kinds of mean, nasty things about Joanna Klonsky, my dear friend, Joanna Klonsky, uh, who was an aide to... Uh, uh, arena. So I'm just saying when I saw that article, Marissa, I was just like shaking my head going, wow, isn't that something? There was a need for affordable housing on the Northwest side. After all, John arena was right. All right. Well, thank you very much commissioner for coming on the show. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Ben. Great to see you and take care. All right. Very very good. All right, Carlos, switch, switch gears and talk about the headline, uh, in today's sun times, and uh, I thought of you uh, immediately when I heard about the vote. I had to bring you on the show because I know you've been fighting for this for a long time. In historic vote, city council OK civilian oversight of police department. And that vote went down yesterday. I think it was 34 to 13. I'm doing this off the top of my head was the vote. Uh, we, we, had, we, had, we had 36 to 13. 36. OK. Excuse With me. one absence. One guy was absent from that one. Uh, all right. So, uh, first of all, tell folks what exactly was passed and what it will mean for the city of Chicago. Well, Chicago has been crying out for civilian oversight and community control of the police for decades. It was the Black Panther Party in Chicago recognizing the police misconduct, recognizing the unconstitutional racist policing impacting the Black community that first called for community control police. Most recently, it was in the wake of the cover-up of Laquan McDonald's killing that people started to take to the streets again and demand community control of the police. Uh, In 2014, in 2015, um, there was really a very galvanized movement uh, calling for what uh, was then called the Civilian Police Accountability Council. Um, That ordinance uh, would have created a directly elected commission Uh, which would be made up of civilians 
And that commission would then have all power over the police department. Shortly after uh, that proposal was introduced to the Chicago City Council uh, by myself and about a dozen other aldermen uh, alongside the Chicago Lions uh, Against Racist and Political Oppression and many other community groups, uh, there was another group formed called the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability that was made up of a number of nonprofit organizations from throughout the city of Chicago, and they came up with their own uh, Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability GAPA proposal. So those two proposals uh, have been in uh, city council uh, for about five, six years now, and it was some years ago, not even some years ago, some months ago, uh, that these two proposals finally came together uh, to form the Empowering Communities for Public Safety Ordinance. And it was that ordinance uh, that Mayor Lightfoot took at the last minute, uh, last Thursday, made some changes to it, um, changed about 20% of the ordinance, and then sent it back to us and said, I'll support you all in, in passing this. We went to the negotiating table over the weekend. Uh, we uh, changed about half of what she had changed back to where we would like it to be at. Um, and we ended up passing uh, yesterday uh, at the city council, the nation's most comprehensive and strongest and most progressive civilian oversight ordinance. Now, what uh, did you add to the mayor's revised proposal uh, that was made it uh, so different? Well, the mayor took our proposal and she made changes to it. Um, I guess the biggest change that she made to it that we accepted is that the civilian commission, and I'll just, I'll just kind of explain generally the way that this will work. So uh, at the end of this year, the city council will nominate 14 people to the mayor. The mayor will select seven of those 14 people, and those seven people will make up the interim commission. Um, two of them have to be from the west side. Two of them have to be from the south side. Uh, two of them have to have extensive experience in uh, civil rights, in grassroots organizing for human rights and for marginalized communities. At least one of them has to uh, have a community organizing background and two of them have to be youth. So in total it's seven, but they have to meet those uh, requirements. They have to check those boxes to make sure that it's really people from marginalized communities. It's really people who have been impacted by racist policing who are going to be empowered uh, to provide this civilian oversight for CPD. Uh, the powers that they are going to have and the powers that the commission will have moving forward is they will nominate who should serve as our uh, police chief. Uh, if they don't like the job the police chief the police chief is doing, they can uh, take a vote of no confidence, which will then trigger and force a vote in the city council as to whether or not the police chief will be removed. Uh, they will hire the COPA administrator. Uh, so the COPA administrator, the Civilian Office of uh, Police Accountability, they're the individual that's tasked with investigating police misconduct within the department. Uh, they will report directly to the commission. They will be hired by the commission. If they don't like the job that the COPA administrator is doing, they can uh, recommend that the COPA administrator be fired, at which case the city council uh, will have to take action to decide whether or not the COPA administrator should be fired. Uh, they will also have the ability uh, to draft and create CPD policy. Um, and here's where the mayor uh, won a concession at the negotiating table. If the mayor does not like the policy that the commission creates, she will be able to reject that policy, in which case the policy will not go into effect. Uh, the public will know that the mayor has rejected this policy after the commission sought to implement it. 
uh, and the city council can overrule this rejection by a two-thirds vote. This is extremely similar to the legislative process that exists for the city council and in a lot of legislative bodies. Uh, the council or the legislators put forward an ordinance or a policy or piece of legislation, and if the executive doesn't like it, uh, they can uh, veto that uh, policy uh, and then the veto can be overridden if the legislative policymaking body feels very strongly that it needs to move forward. Um, so that's one of the concessions there that the mayor got. Uh, and uh, in addition to um, you know, those powers uh, that I've just uh, listed, the civilian commission is also going to be able to identify priorities um, for uh, the uh, different uh, you know, officials that oversee the police department like the police chief, like the COPE administrator, uh, they're also going to be able to have public hearings. The public, if they identify issues going on in the police department, can collect 2,000 signatures. They can collect those signatures at a train stop, at a grocery store, and submit those 2,000 signatures to compel the commission and to compel the police department to hold a public hearing on a specific topic that the public would like to see addressed. Um, so the commission is going to have a lot of power over the police department. There's nothing that exists like this anywhere else in the country. Beginning in February of 2023, the same time that uh, the municipal primary is occurring, people will, for the first time ever, vote on district councilors. So the city of Chicago has 22 uh, police districts, and in each police district, they will elect three district councilors. Those district councilors uh, will then play a role in nominating who should make up the seven citywide civilian commission moving forward. Um, so, of course, there's that citywide civilian commission with seven people. So we'll be the elected district councilors from the police district level uh, that will nominate who should be uh, on that body. And then the district councilors will play a role in uh, working with the citywide commission uh, to identify issues in the individual police districts and provide uh, some oversight and accountability from the public within each individual police district. So meeting with the police commander, meeting with the public, holding meetings in each police district to gather input, to discuss issues that are going on. Um, so for the first time ever in the city of Chicago, the public, and particularly those that have been directly impacted by a broken policing system, will have a real say in the direction of the police department. Um, is it everything that we wanted? It's not. Um, is it stretching the bounds of what we can do within the existing state law and Illinois constitution? Absolutely it is. Um, and it's a extremely strong, like I said, the strongest civilian oversight ordinance uh, in the nation. And, and it's, we hope it's gonna be transformative. All right, now I uh, just wanna clarify one thing. Uh, and that's uh, February two, uh, 2023. There will be an election from the, the, the 23 police districts that you said. 23, is that correct? 20, that. 22. 22, my bad. 22. Uh, and uh, from that, uh, uh, from 22 districts, three people from every district. Did I get that correct? So Yes, we'll be elected. We'll be 66 total citywide. Do I have that right? Is my math yes. correct? Okay. Yes. That math is pretty good after all these years. <laughs> all right. So that body of 66 will then select seven people uh, who will be uh, on the, uh, the oversight board. Am I correct in that? They, they will yes. select and to, and to be, and to be more precise, one person from each police district will make part of the citywide nominating committee. 
So 22 people will select seven people. Okay. So this is very similar long before you were around uh, to the school board nominating commission uh, that existed in the first uh, era of reform in Chicago back in like the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, we, we did away with that in uh, 95 with mayor. Now, uh, so my, my question to you is this. So the mayor will not be able to subsequent to that 2023 uh, election to veto the people who sit on that inter, uh, on the oversight board. Am I correct? No. So under Illinois law and under the Illinois constitution and as prescribed by our city charter, the mayor is the executive that has to appoint these positions. And so technically the mayor has to be able to have her pick. Um, the only way that we could change that is by either getting a change in state law or getting a referendum, uh, which under the Illinois constitution if we put forward a referendum to change our local form of government and a majority of voters accept that, we can change our local form of government. Um, so when I say that really this ordinance is pushing the boundaries of what is permissible under state law, what I mean by that is that um, the civilian uh, district counselors through that 22 person nominating committee, they will send a list of 14 people to the mayor. And from that list, the mayor has to pick seven. Got it. Um, and ultimately, the city council must appoint because that's the system of government that we have. The mayor, you know, nominates and the city council appoints. But what we're saying here is that the, that the civilians will play a key role in identifying who should actually serve uh, on this commission. And um, I mean, it's going to look bad if the mayor says, look, this list of 14 people that you sent me, I don't like a single one of them. I'm rejecting all of them. Right. And so. Uh, it's 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 a powerful form of accountability yeah. and it's an unprecedented level of civilian input. Yeah, I, I would I would say this uh, and I'm glad you did that clarification because it really is like the old school board nominating commission where they would suggest names to the mayor and then the mayor would select from the names they suggested. I would say it's a form of democracy. I really do believe that, Carlos. Uh, in other words, when if let's say the mayor were to veto every single person that they sent to her or they uh, vetoed some high profile cases, there would be an outcry. And I, I could see the outcry crumbing from two different wings, politically speaking. If she were to reject it, let's say somebody who had connections to fraternal order police, I could see some of your colleagues like, uh, I don't know, Nick Spazzato or Alderman Napolitano or Alderman O'Shea objecting. Do you follow what I'm saying? If she were to reject somebody who was uh, from the left, I could see you objecting. So in other words, and then there would essentially the public would be brought into it with the public conversation about a discourse about it, it would be an issue in an upcoming election. I would say I'm putting the best spin possible on it uh, and say, this is democracy. Do you think I'm yeah. generous? No, I think you're absolutely right. This is democracy. Uh, it forces conversations that in the past were not in the public eye about the direction of policing in the city of Chicago. Um, one of the things that I repeated consistently yesterday was that we need to be clear what this is and is not. It's not defunding the police. I support spending less on policing and less on prisons and spending more on the things that actually keep us safe. This is not that. Um, it's not abolishing the police. What it is, it's police reform. Um, and I think as we've now found out, myself, all of the grassroots activists involved in this fight, is that we have a deeply conservative city council and we have a deeply conservative mayor. Um, but the people stayed out in the streets 
the people uh, continue to knock doors. While we were at the negotiating table over the weekend, hashing out the final details on this compromise, uh, which was 90% of where our ordinance was at before the mayor you know, started making changes of it, we continue to have people out at the doors, knocking doors to pressure aldermen uh, to move in the right direction for civilian oversight and community control of the police. Um, so I, I think it's important for us to, to be truthful about the limitations of this reform, but also recognize that this was a very hard fought reform. Mayor Lightfoot did not want this civilian commission to have any of these powers. If you look at the version that she introduced uh, into the Public Safety Committee, it was essentially an advisory body that she could appoint and then could provide her with advice, which I said then, and, and I'll say it again now, you don't need an ordinance to have an advisory body uh, provide advice to the mayor. This is going to be a commission that's going to be empowered to do real things, to bring uh, the police chief before public meetings, to hold the police chief to account, to draft policy and to set CPD policy. It will look very bad for the mayor if she vetoes that policy that has gone through this democratic process that has been informed by the district councilors and that has been set by the commission. Um, so Again, we really pushed the boundary of how we could reform the system within the existing limitations of state law and the Illinois Constitution. Um, but I'm very proud of, of the final product that we got. And it's, it is an accurate statement that this is uh, the strongest and most progressive version of civilian oversight in the nation. There is nothing like this anywhere else in the country. All right, Carlos, you said something. I wrote it down. And I'd love to get you to elaborate. We have a deeply conservative city council and a deeply conservative mayor. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that um, there were a lot of aldermen and primarily white Northside aldermen who did not want to vote for this. And in the end, almost all of the votes against this came from uh, white aldermen, uh, both from the north side, northwest side and southwest side. Um, but there were some white aldermen and some black aldermen who uh, did not want this uh, ordinance to move forward. Uh, and in the end, it was the strength of our coalition, the strength of our grassroots organizing in their communities, um, and uh, the mayor also having to make some calls once she was uh, on board with this compromise effort to really twist some arms. And even then, you see how close. We needed 34 votes. So under Illinois law, in order to set up this elected district council position, we needed exactly 34 votes. Couldn't pass it with 33. We needed 34 votes. Um, and we got 36. So it took a lot of people um, calling, lobbying, uh, pushing, putting that grassroots pressure, putting that grass tops pressure to get the outcome that we did. Um, and so for me, it just shows like just how conservative this city council is. I see that. Uh that you got uh, 13 people to vote no i i you know it's and it's uh well, not, not just 13 people to vote no it's the fact that the amount of effort that it took us to get to 36. Uh, <laughs> in other words it wasn't just 13 there were probably there's some names that are not in these articles that whose arms really had to be twisted <laughs> oh, that hurt yeah oh. and, and 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 there were some concessions that had to be made uh in order to get there to get to 34 votes well, listen, um, the, big, yeah. the big concession uh, that uh, my lefty friends are uh, telling me about is that the, uh, the, the Oversight Commission does not have the ability to hire and fire the police chief. 
Uh, that's the one I hear the most from folks. They didn't get to. Uh, so you might as well address that one right now, Carlos. Yeah. So again, based upon the lawyers that were part of our coalition, it is my understanding that under Illinois law, because of the system of government that we have, where the mayor is the executive and the mayor hires city officials. So unless we put a referendum on the ballot to change our form of government, to replace the mayor as the person who selects the police chief with this commission, we would not be able to make that change. So that kind of was already set for us by state law and by the structure of our city government. Um, That's why in an earlier version of this, about a month ago, we included a referendum, uh, which was included in the ordinance. uh, And that referendum uh, would have Uh, asked the voters of the city of Chicago if they wanted to change our form of government to create a civilian commission that had the power to hire and fire the uh, police superintendent. So we could not have given that power to the civilian commission simply through passing an ordinance. That was not an option. Um, Because of that, we put the referendum in. But let me tell you, there were members of the Progressive Caucus um, who did not support that provision and would not have voted for this ordinance if uh, if we included the referendum uh, in uh, the ordinance. So, again, I, I think that's why I kind of say, look, there, there's a very conservative uh, city council that's there before us. We have more progressives that, than ever before. And I'm very proud that in the end, every single member of the Progressive Caucus voted to make this change. Um, but I, I think it just it just goes to show um, that I guess what I'm saying is this is the best deal that we could get for now. Yeah through this existing city council. And I'm just going to point out some of the opposition votes and I'm smiling at them. I'm going to read these to you. Uh, uh, Alderman Marty Quinn uh, from the 13th Ward. That's Michael Madigan's alderman. Come on, Marty. Uh, And uh, you got Patrick Daly Thompson from the 11th Ward. Uh, That's uh, old man Mayor Daly's nephew. Uh, You got Ed Burke. I'm sorry, Carlos. I'm just saying his name. I'm like, I can't believe they still allow that guy to vote. Uh, he's under indictment, federal indictment. Uh, and then here, here's my one. Uh, um, my old friend, Nick Spazzato, voted no. And uh, Anthony Napolitano on the northwest side, Jimmy uh, Gardner in the 45th Ward. Carlos, I'm guaranteeing you, out of those districts, you're going to see some members who are conservative get elected. And this is the irony of it. It gives voice. It's a potential to give them voice. And they're voting no. They're going to have it both ways, Carlos. You watch. They voted no, which means they get to talk about how they object to it. And and there's too much oversight for the police. And when all said and done, they'll elect uh, uh, commission members who amplify their worldview. They'll actually come out of this for all their moaning and groaning with more amplification than they already have. That's my read. What's your thoughts? Um, you know, I, I think the way that the citywide commission is set up, there need to be two people from the west side, two people from uh, the south side. Um, there also needs to be two young people, uh, I believe between the ages of 18 and, and 26. Um, and then there also has to be um, people who have a background in organizing for marginalized communities. Uh, people who have a community organizing background. So I think the hope is that for the citywide commission, uh, you should end up with uh, a pretty diverse list of people that actually understand um, how policing has harmed our communities uh, in racist and unconstitutional ways. 
Uh, however, to your point, every single police district is going to be able to elect three people. And those people that are elected are going to play a major role in nominating and selecting who's actually on the citywide commission. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why my colleague, Alderman Raymond Lopez, who's been a longtime supporter of CPAC uh, and voted uh, to pass this ordinance. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that he pointed to is that, you know, if you are, you know, a, a more conservative person, you too are going to have an opportunity to run for these positions uh, and play a role in the direction that policing takes in uh, our city and in our community. I think it's incumbent upon us as progressives to make sure that we win as many of those seats as possible. Yeah. And that's and that's a, a larger point about democracy, Carlos. It doesn't always work out. <laughs> Do I know this? It doesn't always work out the way you want it to. And I don't know if you follow the news of suburban Chicago, but in Niles, the, uh, a town just uh, northwest of Chicago, there's a library board that's that's like really radically right and trying to and is like dedicated to cutting library services somehow other maga took control of this uh, library board the point is this it's not a so now there's a counter fight going on in niles carlos where people are organizing against the library board it's called democracy i don't know what else to say it carlos you don't always win you don't always get your way and uh it forces you a lot of times to put your ideas out there deal deal with uh the other side, you know what I mean? Try to prevail in Chicago. We're so used to this like bossism where they just shove stuff down your throat and that's the way it's going to be. I think this is like a small, but a significant step toward having a democracy in the city of Chicago. That's my view. on What's your, do you, Absolutely. Again, yeah, this, this sets the floor. So, you know, for those of us who want to see more direct community control over the police, who want to see more democracy, this sets the floor, right? And so we're going to build upon this. Um, but you're right. It's it's. I don't necessarily know how small it is or how big it is, but I would say it's a significant step in the right direction. Um, but it, it, it's success while we put those checks and balances in there, uh, in the sense of you know you we people from the south side and the west side will be uh, guaranteed to be represented on the commission. Um, and uh, while, you know, young people will be guaranteed to be represented on, on the commission, there's an immigrant advisory committee. So immigrants will be guaranteed to have a voice in this process, uh, particularly undocumented immigrants that can't vote. While we took the process of putting in those checks and balances to make sure that we end up with a commission that's oriented towards police reform, nonetheless, this will not succeed unless people actually show up and run for these positions in 2023. But the great news is this morning in my inbox, was someone's resume seeking my support to run for, <laughs> <laughs> for district council. So I, I think that there's a lot of institutional support. There's so many wonderful nonprofit organizing uh, groups throughout the city of Chicago. I hope that their leaders and I, I uh, run for these positions. And I hope that, um, you know, that they volunteer their time to, to help, uh, you know, uh, get the right people elected into these uh, jobs. All right. That little Google Meet uh, alarm is in the left hand uh -oh. corner. It's signaling we may get cut off, uh, but I want to uh -oh. continue this conversation. Uh, so uh, uh, we may have to uh, just sign off briefly and then uh, take a break, put, play some music and then bring you back. Because there's a lot of questions I want to ask you, at least uh, f uh, five minutes worth of questions. And one of which is this, this directly ties to, and I think I mentioned this before we went on the air, Carlos. In this city, there is this notion that uh, we don't really have an orderly functioning city unless the mayor can get 
command, like 45 at least. You know, I think it's uh, sometimes is always comparing the votes, the yes votes that Mayor Rahm got and Mayor Daley routinely got. And Pat O'Connor, Patrick O'Connor, who used to be the alderman of the 40th Ward. <laughs> Carlos, I was in the middle of a riff, and I uh, really loved for you to riff on what I was riffing. I was the, saying, the last thing I heard was Patrick O'Connor. Yeah, Patrick O'Connor, the 40th Ward, was the uh, floor leader for Mayor Daley and Mayor Rahm, and he was always very proud that he could round up 45 aldermen to vote for whatever dumb idea the mayor had uh, offered, <laughs> including but not limited to uh, selling the parking meters. So uh, I think it's healthier right now, frankly, that you have more aldermen, even if I disagree with the aldermen who are dissenting. I think it's healthier to have aldermen uh, disagreeing with the mayor. I think it's healthier to have the mayor have to make phone calls uh, to uh, get aldermen to support her uh, and for her to have to go to the public and explain and defend her proposals and to win over public support. That's how I view it. I don't believe that 48 to 2 votes for whatever dumb idea the mayor wants, which is probably had not had any scrutiny whatsoever, is healthy for the city of Chicago. Your response? Well, you know, those lopsided votes just show the genius of our dear leader. Um, they, they show um, just how everyone rose in acclamation um, to support uh, this policy to move Chicago forward. No, I, I think you're right, uh, Ben. I, I agree with you on that. Democracy is messy. Um, I think our city council... Um, is, is an interesting one because, you know, we run in nonpartisan elections, uh, yet we know who is progressive and who's right wing and, you know, who's more centrist and moderate. Um, but because we don't have to wear that, you know, uh, label when we are elected into office um, and because we have a progressive caucus that is a minority in the city council, but even within that progressive caucus, there's a great spectrum in terms of where people stand on specific issues. Um, it's a little bit difficult at times to parse out, um, you know, where people really stand on these issues. And I think what was interesting here is that this is one of those issues where you really got to see, speaking to civilian oversight, where you really got to see who was the far right wing of the Chicago City Council. Um, and um, I mean, it, for those of who have been following the city council, the no votes didn't come as a surprise. I think for me working on the inside and having gone through this sausage making process, what shocked me was that, you know, there were actually some people who um, who I would not have pegged to have been as conservative as they were or to, to hold such right wing beliefs that really espoused them uh, in one on one conversations. Um, and again, I think that in some ways having that strong mayor, uh, it, that stronger mayor that we had in the past, because arguably I, I think the most recent daily, of course, the you know first daily, but you know in 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 this century, uh, you know the the two mayors that we've had prior to the mayor we have now were clearly much stronger than than this mayor, um, but I think they kind of hid those fractures that existed within the city council. Yeah. Right. So you had people that were more conservative voting for things that were more progressive, or you had people that were more progressive voting for things that were more conservative because they feared the mayor because they wanted the carrots that the mayor had yeah. to give. Um, and so I, I think that that kind of hid the ideological, the, the geographic, 
neighborhood level differences that exist amongst the members of the city council. And now that we have a weaker mayor and now that aldermen feel more emboldened to really stand up on their principles or to push forward their worldview, um, they're, you're, you're beginning to see those fractures that exist uh, in the city council. Um, and, and in some ways, it, you know, I, I was a little bit disappointed because in the past, if, if you made your bed with, you know, the mayor of the city of Chicago, you were guaranteed to get the votes. And that was not the case here. I mean, even after we had that compromise with the mayor, it, it came down to a razor thin margin. I mean, this coalition, I'm so forever grateful to SCIU Healthcare. I mean, they went all out. They were sending mailers uh, to, to pressure aldermen, uh, which of course is not cheap. Uh, they had nonstop phone banks with their members, you know, calling residents and getting residents in each ward to call their aldermen to pressure them. Um, it, it really took a whole broad coalition um, and, uh, and I, I think it just really showed the, the state of, you know, city hall politics. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just point out again, uh, a simple majority would have been 26. You needed the, uh, 34 because this, uh, you were making a change that affected the board of election commission. So, yes. uh, it was even a harder, uh, that's true. That's true. Climb. And, uh, so a simple, all you need is that simple majority, uh, but your point's well taken. Shout out to SEIU Healthcare for doing that. Uh, good. Now, here's my question. I've been thinking about this, Carlos. There's nothing in this ordinance, and that, as you laid it out, that the mayor couldn't have supported a year ago. So what took <laughs> so long? What, and by the way, I just want to point out, you not only got already uh, a resume from someone who was thinking of running for office, or uh, I already received... A uh, overture from the mayor's political action committee, which, as I love to point out, uh, Carlos, somehow or other gets sent to my email in the name of my wife. I can't figure that one out. What mailing list they got. But they email it to me and they address the letter to my wife. And it's uh, congratulating the mayor for doing a wonderful job of passing this ordinance, a historic ordinance. And I'm shaking my head laughing. I'm like, already she's campaigning on it. She resisted it like hell for the last year, but better late than never, okay? Uh, so my question is, what changed, in your humble opinion, that got the well, mayor to, to go ahead and uh, cut the deal? Go ahead. Well, look, this ordinance is stronger than the GAPA ordinance the mayor supported on the campaign trail. I think if the mayor had kept her promise, I think she regrets not having kept her promise during the first 100 days. Um, because the ordinance that she supported at the beginning of this term, the ordinance that she ran on, uh, GAPA, uh, is not as strong as the ECPS ordinance that just passed. Um, so in some ways she played herself, right? <laughs> um, but, but the other way of looking at this too is that the grassroots organizing and that pressure really worked. Um, the mayor did not want the civilian commission to be able to set policy. Uh, she didn't want to be put into the awkward position uh, and potentially politically volatile situation of having to reject or veto a policy created by the commission. She didn't want that. She wanted those conversations to happen behind closed doors. And she didn't want the civilian commission to be able to go out on its own and say, this is the policy that we're going to enact for CPD. We dare you. We dare you, Madam Mayor, to reject it. She didn't want that. She also, uh, in, in the earlier GAPA version, did not have the civilian commission uh, directly uh, hiring the COPA administrator. That was a major thing that we won uh, in this fight, thanks to our consistent grassroots organizing. Um, Look, the mayor forced us 
to go out and knock doors and protest and march and lobby to get where we were at. But I will also say that I'm grateful and thankful to the mayor and I'm thankful to her team uh, for finally allying with us to get this through. Um, because it's also no, no lie that the, we needed the mayor in the end to get this through the city council. And again, to your point, I think that was an important point that you just made. It's because we needed those 34 votes. Yeah. If we only needed 26, then I think maybe, you know, we could have pushed this through without the mayor. The key thing we got to recognize here, though, is that then the mayor could have used her veto power, at which point to override her veto would have kicked it up to 34 votes. By the way, I note that uh, two aldermen from the, uh, the Central Business District area voted no. Brian Hopkins of the second ward and Brendan Riley of 42nd ward. Brendan Riley, who supported the Republican for state's attorney, that wackadoodle who's running. Uh, yes, that would be the same Brendan Riley. And the point I was going to make, uh, there was an old wisecrack that goes back to the 80s before you were born, uh, the late 70s before you were born, uh, Carlos, that say a neoconservative is a liberal who got mugged. And um, I... Uh, that those <laughs> uh, those riots uh, from last year that followed the, the murder of uh, George Floyd, those riots have moved the central business, excuse me, the central business alderman to the right publicly, in my humble opinion. I've, I've noticed their rhetoric, particularly Brian Hopkins rhetoric uh, and uh, Brendan to a lesser degree. Uh, but since uh, it's become a more law and order uh, outfit, if you will. Uh, do you agree with me on that point? I, I think so. I, I think that there was already a, a level of conservatism um, in their politic. I think that it just brought it more out into the open. And I think it made it something that is more readily applauded by certain members of the Chicago media and a certain portion of the electorate um, who uh, actively like espouse these right-wing you know, law and order talking points. Um, I personally wish that you know, the, the historic uprising that we saw would move people towards uh, evidence-based approaches to public policy. Um, you know, one of the things that I did uh, was I went to the Chicago Public Library website and registered online for uh, my uh, updated library card because I couldn't find my old one. And I got immediate access to JSTOR. And I started researching and looking up articles. And I looked up articles that assessed what happened uh, in North America when the police went on strike in the 1970s. And there were some major North American cities where that's exactly what happened. The police went on strike. And do you know the only category of crime that saw an increase when the police went on strike? Take a guess. Property crime? Uh, sort of. Uh, breaking into rich people's houses. Yeah, that's, that's what I. <laughs> that's yeah. the only category of crime that went up. But every other, you know, category of crime uh, pretty much stayed the same. Um, the only one that will stayed the same or, or went down. The only one that went up uh, was that specific category. So again, I, 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 I'm digressing. My point here is that yes, I, I think that there is there's an extremely right wing element in the city of chicago and they're very well represented in the city of chicago look we only have five democratic socialists in the caucus um yet we have uh oops sorry i got broken in by a call you know we have 14 uh plus uh conservatives 
uh, who are, you know, going to push for the agenda of the FOP. You, yeah, you only have five, but there's at least three others who are not in the caucus who are very sympathetic to your views. So it's not as bad as five, you know what I'm saying? Uh, all right. I, uh, but by the way, I just want to take an opportunity uh, to promote our next hideout show because something uh, Carlos said triggered it on August 3rd at the hideout. Maya and I will be interviewing Judge Timothy Evans, Chief Judge Ooh. of Cook County. Yes, he will be showing up. Uh, it should be a great evening, very interesting evening. And the reason why I say it relates to what Carlos just alluded to is that he is at the forefront of a debate, an argument, if you will, whatever you want to call it, as to whether uh, increase in crime is triggered by letting people out of jail without holding them. Uh, and uh, he says there's no proof of that. So it'll be very interesting to hear what he has to say. Uh, Judge Timothy Evans doesn't make a lot of public appearances, uh, Carlos, but I guess he just liked this old lefty or whatever. And so he agreed to come. So he'd be at the hideout at 630 on August 3rd. All right. I want to close by uh, tying what's going on in Chicago, uh, Carlos, to the national debate. The last time we were on the show, we talked about the mayoral race in New York. Uh, since then, uh, Eric Adams has been victorious in the Democratic uh, primary. He probably will be uh, the next mayor of New York unless the citizens of New York lose their mind and elect uh, a MAGA guy named Curtis Sliwa. Uh, to defeat him, Curtis is the Republican candidate. I don't think New York will lose its mind. Um, so uh, Eric Adams, as you know, we just talked about this the last time Carlos ran sort of on a law and order uh, ticket, if you will, a platform. Um, but an interesting one, very nuanced law and order. So what? Uh, how do you tie what you just did in Chicago with what happened uh, in New York with Eric Adams? Well, I think that we have to understand, I'm, I'm a democratic socialist, I believe in the central demand put forward by the defund CPD campaign. Um, I aspire for a day that we can abolish systems of punishment uh, and state violence. Um, but here I am supporting <laughs> what is very mainstream liberal police reform uh, and doing it in coalition with labor, with grassroots community organizations, um, doing that because in the context of the city of Chicago, it's pushing the conversation to the left. Uh, it's uh, setting uh, the floor for future police reform fights that we're going to continue to take on in the future. Um, I think that without having studied much into what happened in New York, there are a ton of uh, progressives and leftists in New York. Um, and Eric Adams was one of the first New York City elected officials to endorse Bernie Sanders for president. So I think that Eric Sanders, the, the Eric Adams, um, probably in the Chicago political spectrum, would be more left or more progressive uh, than um, a lot of folks in the city council or in Chicago and Cook County politics. Um, I also think that there were a lot of other people that were to the left of Eric Adams who got a ton of votes and who did very, very well, uh, including the, the woman who you know worked for de Blasio, including the candidate endorsed by AOC and others uh, closer towards uh, the, the date of the election. So what, what's clear to me is that there is a lot of progressive support in uh, New York uh, and in New York politics. Um, and, and I think that... Um, you know, that progressive movement, uh, those progressive candidates that were elected, I think they're going to continue to move Eric uh, Adams to the left. But I, but I don't think that he is some type of, you know, far right candidate a la Nick Fasado. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think he's all on Nick Spazzato. My old friend, Nick Spazzato, definitely don't. By the way, you know, I thought I knew everything in the world, Carlos, and I must confess I did not know that. I did not know that Eric Adams supported Bernie Sanders. How did I not know that? In, in which, no, which election? 16 or 20? That, before I say that, let me, let me double check. But yes, a good socialist friend of mine did tell me that he supported Bernie Sanders. Wow, that so. just, when you said that, it caught me off guard. I was like, what? I did not know that. Uh, so I learned something new every day. Uh, and uh, with that, Carlos, uh, I think we should close down the conversation for today. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, so congratulations. To, uh, I remember, I'm going to have a little memory moment here. Uh, when we used to be at the Sun-Times building doing our show before the pandemic, coming out of the Sun-Times building on the, on the west side, the near west side, and Carlos, you and a group of activists were standing on the sidewalk. I don't know if you remember this. And you had just met with the Bright Ones editorial board to try to pr- push for a civilian oversight group. I don't know ah, if you yes, remember. Yes. Remember that? And I yes. looked at you guys, I'm like... Man, this is Chicago. You'll never get that, okay? <laughs> Old cynical me. And you proved me wrong. I mean, I know it's not exactly what everybody wanted, the hiring and firing powers, but it's, I think it's pretty remarkable. Well, well let, me be, let me be clear. Like, the, again, the, the struggle continues, right? And so we're going to continue to push for a referendum to win the right to directly elect our civilian commissioners. Again, we could not directly elect the civilian commissioners without either a change in state law or a referendum changing our form of government. So we're going to continue to push for that referendum that will allow us to directly elect the commissioners and expand their powers to include things like hiring and firing. We're going to continue to push for a city that invests more in education and healthcare and housing and all of the things that actually keep us safe, not police and prisons. We're going to continue to fight for that Chicago, but we do that now on the firm footing of ECPS And we only got to this firm footing because of a massive grassroots movement. Um, I think it's important for us as progressives in the city to have an accurate, realistic analysis of how we got here. We got here because of our movement, but I got to tell you something, we need a hell of a lot more progressives (laughs) at City Hall to be able to continue to win more. Yeah. Uh, And that's a good spot uh, ever to close it. So Carlos, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Marissa Navarro, housing commissioner, for coming on. And I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, who puts up with me and Google Meet. And uh, as Carlos and Marissa can tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. Yay for our teachers! This little light of mine. This little light of mine. How did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to?